Welcome to In This Issue DTV podcast for Volume 9, Number 8 for August 2011. My name is Alex Taylor and I'm here today with Bryony Lovelock, the production editor. Hello. David Fazakali, the deputy editor. Hello. And Ike Yanacho, the editor. Hello. Um, so the first the editorial today um, that we're going to talk about is HIV services, what role for primary care. Ike, do you want to just run through this? Uh, yes. Um, HIV has been classically portrayed as a as a disease of specialists and secondary care. But what's happened as treatment for the condition has improved is that it has stopped being a, a, a disease which is necessarily life-shortening um, to being a, a disease which can be managed chronically. It lends itself to the idea that, that uh, a lot of I- HIV management could actually occur in primary care. So this editorial discusses that issue. Is there the money? Is the money available? That's a good question. Uh, Is the money available? Is the knowledge and expertise available in primary care? Those are reasonable enough questions. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, And the editorial doesn't specifically focus on on those issues. But whether or not there's there's the money, it still doesn't uh, stop asking the question as to whether secondary care is the best place for people to be managed. They have a a chronic manageable disease. There are many chronic manageable diseases which are managed by people in primary care. So if there isn't the money, if there isn't the expertise, maybe those are things that at least need to be considered. I mean, you could understand why what was then a new disease needed specialist input, people were learning about it, but it has become much more common and the treatment is much more mainstream now. Um, and I suppose the, the issue that we try and also pick up in the editorial is that you've got people who are going to live a long time with other chronic conditions who are being seen by their GPs. So you're going to be, be seen for some of their treatment by one group of clinicians, another group of clinicians seeing them for another treatment. And there is there always a risk when that happens that, that people will miss things or prescribing gets overlooked or different prescriptions interact and it's just raising the questions like says of is it the most sensible way of doing it at the moment it may be um, but it certainly needs thinking about it's very interesting looking at the dtb select this month there's a few interesting um, things one of them is antipsychotics in people with dementia Uh, these drugs are commonly used to treat dementia but it's been shown that they actually cause some serious long-term side effects so why are they used so widely if that's the case that is a good question. Um, and I think the, the title we, we put on this little piece, uh, Antipsychotics in People with Dementia, yet again probably highlights the fact that this is something that, that we've talked about, other people have talked about for a long time. Why is it that a, a group of drugs get used in a particular population who we now know suffer quite difficult side effects from from the drugs. What we know about dementia is that it's often associated with behavioural problems, which are quite difficult to manage. People have tried various interventions, and they often reach for for drugs like antipsychotics to, to manage some of the unpleasant symptoms associated with dementia. But what's become apparent over time is that these drugs are actually quite harmful to patients and yet they're still being being used and I think we pick up in here that, that there is, this is a kind of a call for, for action yet again to try and review patients uh, getting clinicians to commit to, to changing the current behaviour so that we don't use these drugs for, for people who are in uh, in places like care homes and, and social care um, and that we look to other 
other interventions if they're available. Yes, I mean, I think it's quite difficult now to be a clinician who prescribes drugs for people with dementia and not know that there's a risk associated with antipsychotic drugs. So the high level of prescribing must have other other drivers for it. It isn't just people not knowing. It's It, it must have, one, one, one assumes, uh, have origins in, in people just not being aware of or not having access to other ways of dealing with the problems which um, they're giving these drugs for. It's a difficult, it's a difficult issue um, uh, and one which results in a lot of people essentially receiving substandard care. And in a similar sort of thread, I suppose, um, inhaled corticosteroids increasing the fracture risk in COPD. It talks about here the significant increase in incidence of fractures. So is this worth taking then for people with COPD? Well, if we take a step back, why, the, why this is an issue is because we've known for a long time that steroids taken by mouth, for example, increase the risk of, of fractures or of bone problems. But there's been a kind of question about the extent to which it applies to steroids taken by the inhaled route. And what the evidence indicates is that people taking inhaled steroids for COPD are at increased risk of, of bone fractures. To answer your, your question, it's information that needs to be taken in the round, really. There may be good reasons for using inhaled steroids in somebody with, with COPD, but one needs to be aware of, of this risk when prescribing them, and indeed one needs to, to share that, that risk with the, the patient concerned. So it's difficult to give a blanket answer as to whether they're worth using or not. It depends, like all these things, on individual cases. But certainly prescribers need to be aware that, that there is this potential problem. I guess it just builds up that picture, doesn't it, that, that we know a bit about what steroids do in terms of benefits for COPD. We now know a bit more about their harms. We also do know that they associated with uh, increased risk of pneumonia in, in patients with with COPD so it just builds up to that whole picture that if you if you're going to start them you need to be able to explain to the patient both the benefits and and the complete range of harms and finally the medicines use reviews targeting three patient groups I'd never heard of these before can you just explain what the medicines use reviews are the medicines use review was a, a service brought in a few years ago through the national contract for community pharmacies to give patients the opportunity of having a one-to-one -one discussion with a pharmacist about the medicines they're taking and to identify any, any problems or any difficulties that they might have. What's now happened is that the Department of Health has consulted and is changing uh, the emphasis slightly to focus these medicines use reviews on three particular um, target areas. So the ones that they've, they've chosen are... Um, any patient who's recently been discharged from hospital where there have been changes made to their medicines. Those with respiratory disease, so back to our COPD uh, discussion a few minutes ago, so people with, with COPD or, or asthma, particularly those using inhalers, which, which are very difficult to use and, and patients may benefit from, from greater discussion with a pharmacist. Uh, and then the, the third group, which is yet to be defined, is a series of what they call high-risk medicines. And the you, know, you might have a guess as to what those might might include. Might be warfarin. Might be other things, like warfarin. But those are the three groups that that the the um, Department of Health would like to take up about seventy percent of all the MURs that a pharmacy a pharmacy does. Do you think there's a a logic to that approach, David? 
I suspect that, yes, I think there is a logic to the groups. I think respiratory medicines, because of inhalers, and we, we know that people are very poor at using inhalers. So there is something about a very practical piece of advice about how to use use inhaled medicines and how to use them effectively. So that makes sense. The group of people who've been into hospital and had changes, they are classically ones where changes aren't communicated well between interfaces or between hospital and primary care. So again, there's a logic to it. I can't comment on the high-risk medicines ones because we haven't seen the list yet. So mm. we'll wait and wait and see on that. But it would be a shame if 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 this excludes other people for whom they would still benefit from a, a medicines use review. So we hope there's enough opportunity for other people still to get their reviews, despite this sort of 70% spent on on these individual ones. So moving on to the first article, that's the place of routine HIV testing. What I found interesting there is that in 2009, half of the adults diagnosed with HIV were already at the late stage of the disease. So what are the main benefits of people finding out far earlier? The benefits of, of finding out early that people have the infection is that they can get antiretroviral treatment early. It can essentially uh, stop them from developing later consequences of HIV infection, such as AIDS and AIDS-related disease, and therefore extend their, their lifespan. And the hospital's introducing the testing now to all people admitted into the acute hospital ward. Um, what are the cost implications of this? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I suppose uh, you need to turn it around and think of what are the cost implications of not doing it. It may actually be cost-effective to introduce what the article focuses on, which is so-called routine testing. All right. So the last article in this issue is what the role is for procalipride in constipation. I see that this is aimed at females. Why is that? Uh, good question. Uh, procalipride's new. Um, it describes itself as a selective high-affinity serotonin receptor agonist with enterokinetic effects. You which, knew that, Alex, didn't you? I knew that. Yeah, <laughs> you were just about to tell me. Which, I guess, means it has action on the bowel to improve bowel movement. Um, and uh, your question about why is it uh, targeted at women, well, most of it, and what we explore in the article, is the kind of evidence behind its its introduction and its licensing. But most of the clinical trials which were used for its licensing and which we report in, in, the, in the article, uh, a high proportion of people in those trials were women. And I think when the regulators examined the data prior to, to licensing it, it really was the, the group of, of women for whom they could find good evidence for its, for its effectiveness according to the criteria they were using. Um, and there weren't sufficient men in in the, in the data to be able to to license it for men. So I don't think it's anything particularly magic about its its action or its activity. I think it's more the fact that in the trials there were far more women um, who were studied rather than rather than men. So do you think they need more trials? Well, if they want to license it for men, uh, then they will need to do more work, and they will need to prove that it it is I mean, it has the same standard of efficacy that that they reported in women. Um, also in, in men. Whether they choose to do that, I I don't know. Do you feel that Procalipride has a strong place in the market? You'll have to read the article to find <laughs> out. <laughs> we certainly talk about the trial evidence and and we draw some conclusions about what you saw with the proportion with placebo and with uh, with the active active drug. Um, and I think you could draw your own conclusions of, of how effective you think it is. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that today. 
If you'd like to make any comments, please email us on dtbeditor at bmjgroup.com or check us out online at dtb.bmj.com. Thanks a lot.